Hey, I'm Bill Search, and I'm joined by my friends Brett Williams and Michael Foster as we kind of do a deep dive into a letter in the New Testament called James. It's written by James. It's rubber hits the road kind of stuff. And over the last several podcasts, we have been slowly crawling our way through the practical day-to-day matters of life that James is very intrigued with. Because to James, faith works its way out in the everyday and in the mundane, and that's life. And so today, we're talking about an interesting topic, bias. We all have bias. And in particular, we have bias towards certain people, certainly a bias against some people. But in particular, the focus today is why do we have bias towards some people? And we live in an interesting culture, don't we? We make heroes out of actors and athletes. We don't know really who they are. And some people we make famous just for being famous. They're called influencers. Every now and then, I see somebody on social media and their actual occupation is influencer. And it's fascinating that we pay attention to these people and uh, follow their every whim. In my house, when the kids tell us something that some actor or famous person is doing, my wife and I will often say, those people aren't real. And we don't mean to be disrespectful. And we're not saying they don't exist. What we're saying is, is that the public persona is just a fabrication. It's just a fiction. Why should we be interested by those people? They eat uh, meals just like we do, and they have to sleep and as the old expression is, they put their pants on one leg at a time. Why are we so interested in those people? And yet we are, we get fascinated with people. And sometimes they're the big famous people. And sometimes it's the close at hand people, like the, the people that we know in our lives. And so that leads me to a question, Michael and Brett, let's go back a little bit. When you were 25 years old, whose opinion mattered to you? Who did you try to impress when you were a young adult? I can remember uh, 25 years old, not long out of college, uh, trying to start a career and really kind of show some financial stability. And I just remember trying to impress those people that um, were my peers, people I graduated college with and um, always trying to show that, that I'd made it. I'd made it in my career. We'd had the house. We had the car. Ours, and we're trying to use those material possessions to really kind of prove to those people that we had done really, really well. The other uh, person that, that I really always think about trying to impress was my dad. You know, had had I done well enough? Was was I was I doing enough as a person to to really be considered successful? So I always try to imp- uh, impress my peers and my parents. Brett, how about you? Well, whenever I was uh, 25, that seems a long time ago, but I can remember, uh, you know, my mentor, many of you have heard me teach on mentorship and some of my experiences with mentoring, Uh, but my mentor in the oil and gas days, uh, anything he said, you know, his opinion mattered. So I did whatever I could to emulate what he was doing. Um, You know, he he seemed to, to be wealthy and well put together and and so I wanted to do whatever that took to be that way. And, you know, full transparency, I can think of several people I tried to impress at that age, uh, starting with my boss's boss. I wanted to climb that corporate ladder. And uh, the other one is uh, I wanted to impress my family and my in-laws. You know, I, as you know, my wife and I, we started at a really young age. And so I wanted to prove to them that I was going to be a good husband and a good father. 
Those are good answers. I, I honestly, I was hoping you guys would choose more shallow things like, you know, a Kardashian or something, but you gave pretty good answers. Uh, you know, the truth is, is there's always somebody out there that we're trying to win the approval of. That's true today. And that was true 2000 years ago. It was true 6,000 years ago. It's been true in all of human history. And sometimes we have been focused on like maybe some of the right people that we want to win the approval of like parents or uh, certain peers for good reasons mixed in with the not so good reasons. But sometimes bias towards some people is for the very, very wrong reasons. And that's what James gets at in chapter two of James. Starting right away in the beginning of chapter two, James says this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And catch that right away, he says, those who take their faith seriously, their faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he's lifting up Jesus Christ here in the reputation of Jesus Christ. And he says, if you are a member of the household of God, you must not show favoritism. And then he gives an example, which we can only assume is a real life example from James' ministry. He was a pastor after all, and he probably had seen this happen. And he probably saw it happen more than once. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't use this as an example. But he says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in also. So you imagine the church setting, there's like a you know, center aisle and two guys show up simultaneously and who's the usher going to seat first? And there's one guy and he's obviously wealthy and one guy who's obviously poor. And James says, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges? And this is what he says, with evil thoughts. He doesn't just leave it with, haven't you been like a little judgmental? He like throws down. You have judged with evil thoughts. And so James is describing two different visitors to church. They come in on the same day and one has all the symbols of wealth and power, really fine clothes, which means he's not into physical work. Otherwise, he wouldn't be wearing nice clothes. There are plenty of wealthy, successful business owners in the community of the era, but they might work in their own shop or they might work in their own field. And so they wouldn't be wearing real nice clothes. It might be a little nicer, but this is a guy who he's like a boss of a boss. You know, he is far, far removed from the hard work of life. And he has the trappings of success. James says he has a gold finger or a gold ring on his finger. But the term James, actually scholars say James made up a term. It's nowhere else in the Greek language that they have found. It's actually gold fingered man. Like, you know, like the old James Bond movie, Goldfinger. This is a gold fingered guy. This guy has, he is like Tom Brady with Super Bowl rings is what he is. Wearing them all at the same time. And so he shows up with all the trappings of success and power. He's showing off. He's letting everybody know, I, I have arrived. Meanwhile, there's another guy, he shows up. In fact, he shows up before you see him because you smell him. He stinks. You know, he's not dressed nice. It's obvious he's destitute. He's not poor is the joke is he's po. The R is missing. You know, he is that poor. He can't even afford the R at the end of poor. And so here's a guy, he shows up and the greeter sees the wealthy guy and he's like, awesome, I got you a nice seat. And the poor guy shows up and he's like, you know what? There's a, there's a, section of the wall you can lean up against you're used to that right and uh, or here's a piece of the floor i mean what what that's what you're used to and james says you have you not discriminated 
in your heart, you're harboring evil thoughts. And what James is getting at is God is reading your mind. You're sucking up to one guy because of his outward appearance, and you're showing absolute disrespect to another guy for the same reason. And yet God made them both. God loves them both, but you only love one and our only happy one came. So guys, here's the question. Well, why is this so often the case? I mean, it was true 2,000 years ago and two millennia later. We still, we still tend to show favoritism. Why? I hate to say it, but many times it's because, uh, you know, as people, we have hidden agendas. Uh, we, we have a how can other people help me mentality. So someone that's well put together, they might have a perception is they have more to offer me if I get to know them than someone who's not as well put together, you know? And so if I were to show favoritism, it'd be to the person that was well put together. And I would be thinking, how can that person help me? How can he help me move up in the company? How can he help me have more friends or get what I want? Or how can he help you fill in the blank? Right. Uh, I am ashamed to say it, but I have in the past showed favoritism to someone because of their status and, and because their outward uh, appearance, um, you know, not so much anymore for sure, but you know, maybe, maybe I'm the only one that that's happened to and doesn't resonate with anyone else. But, uh, but it makes me think, you know, when Jesus isn't the center of our life, when he's not our compass, our true North, oftentimes you get lost in performing for others and using them for your gain while trying to be someone you're not, and it's not who God created you to be. That's good. I feel like I can close in prayer now. Wow, that's good stuff. Michael, what would you add to that? Well, I'd say, you know, Brett, you're not the only one because um, I think that for me, I've definitely showed favoritism. Um, and it's typically, uh, what can I get out of that person? Um, it's in a selfish way is how can I elevate myself? And it really is just that, that um original sin of us trying to uh, take control from God. And we really need uh, Jesus in that driver's seat and really guiding and directing us uh, or else we're really going to kind of fall into uh, some bad places. And if I'm driving, I'm not going to go to the right places. But when we have Jesus driving, it really, really will take us uh, to those right places. So who is it that you're, you're kind of putting your trust in? And um, if you're trying to elevate yourself, um, is typically why we try to show that favoritism. You even see in the church, and that's the scary part, is that, oh, we're going to seat this guy up front because he, he can give us the most money and we can do the most good with that. That's probably not even a good reason to do it. And then I think that's what um, uh, what we're being warned in the scripture here against is showing favoritism. Boy, you know, I love I love how you guys frame that. Is that we either we either do it because we we want something from them, we think they're going to do something for them for us, maybe raise our status or give us something or some advantage, or uh, at, at the same time, the tension is is if we have our our mind on Christ, we're not going to do that. But if we have our mind on like our own limited resources, then we're going to kind of have a utilitarian view of people. Whenever we see them, the question is, what can they do for me? Well, if we, if we really have the attitude of Christ will provide for me, that frees me up to view people as people. They're no longer a tool I use because the Lord will provide. He'll take care. You know, this is part of the Lord's prayer is pray for that provision on a daily basis. And God, who's a good father, provides. 
we trust them with that. And if we don't trust them with it, we try to go looking for it. And when we go looking for it, we just use people. Well, you know, what's interesting is that, um, you know, just like now, we tend to justify our behavior and what it seems, this next paragraph is a little cryptic. It's a little weird. For many years, I struggled with understanding how this paragraph fit with this big idea. But as I studied it, reflected on it, and consulted what other scholars have said through the centuries on it, it made sense. What it seems is now James is responding to the argument made for showing the bias. So apparently what James has done is he, maybe he verbally confronted a church that did this. And then they said, whoa, don't judge us, James. We're only doing this because the good Lord Jesus, he has, he has said that, that um, you know, we are operating out of love. And before, before they get to that argument stage, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, before they get to that argument stage, James, James is sort of anticipating some of the argument. And he says, listen, I mean, dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen these who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? And are they not the ones who are dragging you out into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So, okay, this is a very kind of strange little section because number one, if you just read it without exploring the rest of the Bible, you're going to assume a couple things. If you don't examine the rest of the Bible and you take this, you're going to say, first of all, James must be a communist because he says, number one, God prefers poor people. You know, even Abe Lincoln said, uh, God must have loved the common people because he made so many of them. Well, you get, you know, you could take James at very face value and say, well, God must love the poor more than anybody. And number two, God doesn't like wealthy people because those wealthy people are always dragging you out to court and abusing you. And if you examine all of scripture, what you see is that wealthy and poor alike make up the stories of the Bible. The question isn't about how much you own. The question is how faithful are you? So there have been some very wealthy, faithful people in the past, and there have been some very poor, unfaithful people in the past, just like today. And so uh, the Bible's made up of these faithfulness is the real story. It's not the story of economics. And, the, and also God loves the whole world. That's, that, that's what Jesus tells us in John 3. He loves all races. He loves all IQ levels, all income levels. He loves all zip codes. He loves all people. No matter where you came from, he loves you. And so that includes rich and poor alike. And God judges pay people based upon what they do with him and how they respond to his leading in, in their lives. And so it isn't about what's in your bank account, if whether it's a lot or a little. And some people in the Gospels were called to leave it all behind and give it all, but not everybody was. And some people didn't have to leave any of their occupation in order to follow Christ. And so taking all that in, James, in this context, what he's saying is, is uh, the poor, those who uh, have little to fall back on, the people that are at the end of their rope, those are the people that typically respond to God. Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Later in Luke, it's just straight up blessed are the poor. When asked about his mission, Jesus said, hey, go back and tell John the Baptist good news was preached to the poor. So poor people have been near and dear on the heart of God. And it might be that the poor of this world 
those who don't have a lot of things to fall back on are the ones that trust him the most. Now, with all that in mind, this is something I'd love for you guys to think about, Brett and Michael. If we were to take these two categories today, category that James talks about, wealthy and poor, if we were to take these two categories, who, if James was writing his letter today, instead of using the term wealthy and using the term poor, who do you think he would put in those two different columns? Who would get the preferential treatment, in other words, and maybe who would we neglect or ignore? Who would feel very welcome and who would feel less welcome? Does that question make sense? I think that um, the, the people that look like you and talk like you and think the same way you do are going to be the easiest ones to kind of gravitate towards. And so you'll see this in churches is that you may have a, a bunch of trendy people or people that look nice. Um, and, and those are the people that will get that, that treatment um, that, that's really nice to where somebody that doesn't, um, that, that doesn't look the part or, or do those things. And we, we kind of dealt with this in our Sunday school class is that um, everybody kind of looked the same. You showed up with a really nice press shirt and you look like you had it all together. But when we started to become real with one another, we learned, hey, we're all do, dealing with the same kinds of things. We, we yelled at each other on the way to, to church today. You know, we, we said things that, you know, would have just made people's jaws drop. And I think it goes to show is that people don't have to look like you or think like you or talk like you to, to have um, some sort of thing to add in God's kingdom is that um, God cares about everybody. And so I, I also think about, you know, Matthew chapter six, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And I hope that we're all treasuring Christ. And that's where our treasure is, is in God's kingdom and his economy. And whenever you're starting to think like that, it's going to make it a little easier to, to um, to love people that don't look like you or to that think like you. And so um, it really does um, bring that into today is that it's not always about money, but it may be about something that's just different than what you're expecting, or maybe even somebody that can't benefit you at all um, to, to go through and to, to look like that. Brett, what would you add? You know, I, I think Michael did a fantastic job. I just could just really echo what he said. I, I can't really add much to that. Great job, Michael. And for those uh, who are listening, who are trapped at home during the coronavirus season, you might have heard a dog in there. That would be Michael's dog. And we're all, uh, we're, we're not going to take that sound effect out at all because this is the real life existence that anyone listening right now who's in this season knows exactly what we're talking about. You got a kid crying in the background or a dog barking and that is a-okay. Well, you know, moving along in James here, uh, and I alluded to this earlier, he says something here that... Um, that almost is responding. It tells us a little bit about the issue that was going on in the church because we all get a little defensive when confronted. And it would appear that James was confronting the church or churches for doing this very thing. And they actually quote the Bible back at him. It would seem, at least this is what the scholars have, have uh, suggested. He says, but, but you, uh, if you, Really, um, this is verse eight of James two. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, 
you sin and are convicted by the law of lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one small point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, don't commit murder. And if you commit adultery, but do not commit murder, you have been a lawbreaker. And so what James is saying here, in summary, is that uh, these people are quoting part of the Old Testament in them and saying, you know what, the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself. And, and you know what, the wealthy guy is a neighbor. He's used to a seat. We were just doing what was loving for him. This is what he's used to. But meanwhile, uh, the the guy who came in and he didn't have anything, he was just wearing rags, that guy's used to sitting on the floor. We, we didn't mean any disrespect to him. We were still loving him because that's what he's used to. He's used to leaning up against a wall. I've seen him in the city streets. He leans up against things there. So he's used to leaning. So we gave a chair to the guy who's used to a chair out of a love. And we gave a wall to the guy who's used to the wall. That at least is what scholars have suggested. And James has gone, oh, please. If you're going to quote the Bible at me, I'm quoting it back at you because God knows what's in your heart. Here's a question. Have you ever broken any part of the Bible? If you're going to use the Bible and become legalistic with the Bible, in other words, if you're going to become legalistic with the scripture and say, we're just trying to apply a legal precedent here, James goes, oh, let me, let me get you some legalism. If you're going to save yourself by the law, the law will condemn you. And, and so uh, here's a question, um, and Brett, feel free to take a spin at this question here. Um, how do we justify showing preferential treatment? got any ideas there? Like, how is it that people will justify themselves when they're showing preferential treatment? What are some of the excuses? You know, I I think, I think, uh, as I'm, as I'm thinking through this right now, you know, showing preferential treatment, you know, it's how does it, how is it going to benefit me? Right. Or benefit my cause. Right. So if I have, uh, you know, this person attend our church or our charity event or our ministry, will that draw more people in? Will we be able to get, you know, uh, you know, more likes on Instagram for having this person, um, which gives us more visibility. That's kind of where my mind's going with that one. That's such a good point because today's economy isn't an economy of wealth. It's an economy of popularity. You just think about the way that we treasure and value people. It's more about celebrity than it is about income. And so even, even our preferential treatment might be to somebody who could do more for us in the social media sort of formatting. So that is interesting to think, how could this, I'm going to, how can I justify this? Well, it'll help my greater cause if they're part of my cause. 2,000 years ago, it might have been, hey, if the wealthy guy gives to this little church, we got something. And in our culture today, it might be, hey, that person's cool, and then we'll be cool, and then other cool people will come. And it's a culture of coolness or an economy of coolness. (laughs) So that's, uh, you know what James does, though? He ends this section in a fascinating little phrase. He says, uh, James, this is the end of verse 13. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's actually part of a contemporary Christian song that we've been singing in church lately. There's a little line in there, mercy triumphs over judgment. And uh, what James is getting at is he's poetically referring back to Jesus Christ here. He's saying, 
the mercy of Jesus Christ that we access through faith in Jesus Christ, through following Jesus Christ, by being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We access the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, not through our own efforts, not through having our act together, not through legalism, not through self-justification, not even through the power of powerful people, but we experience God's mercy through Christ. And Christ's mercy triumphs over the judgment. And there's two ways of viewing that, that uh, it triumphs over the judgment of the Old Testament law, but it also triumphs over the judgment of the world because the world judges people more harshly today, I think, than any religion ever judged people. I feel like we live in a very judgmental time. We talk about everybody kind of doing what seems right to them, but I tell you, it seems like our culture is always on a witch hunt for somebody new to take down and vilify. And there's no grace in our culture. There's no opportunity for repentance in our culture. And so it's interesting that James concludes this little section with mercy, the mercy of God through Jesus Christ triumphs over judgment, judgment from the Old Testament, judgment from the world. And what's interesting is, you know, we, I think we always have to cut these people slack. Sometimes we come upon the Bible and we hear these stories and go, man, those people, they were messed up. I'm glad I'm not like them. And the honest thing is for us to go, I am actually a lot like them. I'm tempted in many of the same ways, if not the same ways they are. But, you know, that was the first community that we know of in the history of the world. The church of Jesus Christ was the first institution that did not discriminate based upon gender, ethnicity, skin color, income. And people found that very unsettling. Now, those who experienced it thought, wow, this is awesome. And it took them a while to get with the program and understand what it really meant. It took a while. It takes a while now. Our culture is still figuring this out. However, for Roman culture, they found this very concerning. Roman culture was an extremely stratified, chauvinistic, uh, non-egalitarian culture. And so when Christians, you know, and think about it, when a master joined the same organization as the slave property he owned, and inside the church of God, they are equal. That was unsettling to Roman culture. They did not like it. I mean, it undermined Roman culture. It undermines, well, it undermined Jim Crow culture in the 20th century South, and it undermines China's paranoid government, and it undermines many to this day, inside and outside the U.S. And here's the good news. In Christ, we're free. We're free from being judged, and we're free from judging, not from making wise decisions or showing discernment. That's not judging. That's just being wise. But we're free from the shallow stratification our world offers. And James said to them, as he says to us, grow up, grow up in Christ. So the key here, and it's an old adage, I, I like it. it uh, I've heard it for years, is at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There is no stratification at the foot of the cross. Rich, poor, handsome, homely, athletic, not so athletic. We all come to Christ with a shared need and live in Christ with a shared spirit. So let's demonstrate that. So here's the uh, closing question. And then I'm going to ask Brett to close us in some prayer here. But here's the closing question. Who am I biased for and who am I biased against? You know, who do I show favoritism towards and who am I ill-favored toward? And the real question is this. 
just be honest. You don't have to tell anybody the answer to that question. So you might as well be honest. Tell it to God. Will you yield this to Christ? Will you surrender this area of your life to Christ? That's the question for you to ponder in the coming days and weeks. So Brett, close us out in prayer and send us on our way. Father God, we just thank you so much for each person listening uh, today, Lord. And we just pray that uh, as they uh, ponder those questions, that ending question, Lord, about bias and giving that to you, Lord, that you just be clear and show them the exact path that they need to take. And Lord, I just pray that each person is is open, is open and honest and willing to change. Lord, we just thank you for everything um, that you provide to us, Lord. And I just pray that um, you just guide our week, and guide our conversations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Thanks for joining us. I'm Bill Search with Brett Williams and with Michael Foster. Have yourself a great week.